Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David Johnson, and I'm joined by my seeker host, yep, what's I'm face? representing the Christian or seeker side. Oh, yeah, that guy. Uh, and uh, today, we've got a very special guest, Sean McDowell. How you doing, Sean? Good. Thanks, Dave and Dale, for having me. Oh, welcome to the show. So, you know what? Uh, instead of all of the friendly, uh, funny banter, we're just going to jump right into this because we've got a lot to talk about. And so, with that in mind, I'm going to throw the mic right over to Dale, and Dale is going to introduce our guest more to the point. He's going to let our guest introduce our guest. Dale? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think our the first thing to do is uh, for Sean just to sort of give us an introduction to, to who you are. I, I think most of our listeners will, will already know who you are from your appearance on Unbelievable and that sort of thing. But yeah, if you just wanted to take a chance to sort of describe your own, uh, you know, who you are and your faith journey and plug any uh, projects or, or any websites that you want to, uh, now, now's your chance to, to take the mic and do so. Okay. I'll, I'll start right there. I guess one that might interest your listeners, at least half of them, is called So the Next Generation Will Know, a book that I'm writing with Jay Warner Wallace. I'm sure your audience will recognize him as a cold case detective. And it's just kind of a practical guide for pastors, parents, uh, youth pastors, anyone who cares about the next generation to help them learn to develop a biblical worldview. So it's more of a practical guide than it is uh, doing apologetics itself. So that's what I'm excited about coming up. As far as me, I, I teach at Biola University at Taupe School of Theology in particular, mostly in the in the apologetics department. I teach high school part-time because I really enjoy kind of engaging young people. That's my interest. I taught high school for a decade. And then I get to speak conferences, uh, churches, universities now and then, schools, typically on issues related to culture, worldview, apologetics, and increasingly on Generation Z. Uh, so really, Spike, uh, speaking, writing, and teaching are the worlds I live in. I've been married to my sweetheart for uh Coming up on 19 years, and I'm a dad this Saturday. My son plays in the CIF Southern California Championship for his division. So that's the biggest plug I had to get in. I'm pretty excited about that. So I spend a lot more time being a dad right now, driving kids around than nice. almost anything. Uh, I guess you want to hear about my my faith journey a little bit, too. I, I don't know how much detail you want me to go into, but probably – most of your audience would recognize my father, Josh McDowell, who's been doing apologetics over half a century. Kind of one of the first skeptics we hear about, I guess, in modern times, setting out to disprove Christianity. Deeply troubled background, ended up being convinced the Bible's true, Jesus God, resurrection. Pretty radically changed his life and has spent his life debating, uh, researching, writing, doing humanitarian aid. And it always made sense to me. My parents have a good relationship. I have a great relationship with my dad still. He's 79 and we still do stuff together. He's energetic. And I don't want to over-dramatize this part of my story, but I guess one that people tend to be interested in that was formative to me was when I was, must have been about 19 years old, mid to early 90s, I was at, I was in college. And I remember getting online and learning that the I had never really surfed around the, the internet. You know, mid-90s, people are getting email addresses and starting to surf for the first time, even though it's pre-Google. And this secular web, a lot of it was built on responding chapter by chapter to my dad's material. 
in his book, Evidence Demands a Verdict. And I had never really encountered doctors and historians and philosophers, really smart people, aiming to dismantle all his arguments. And all I can say is it was really unsettling to me. And it really kind of threw me for a loop. And I started thinking, okay, I know my parents mean well, but what if they're wrong? What if another religion is true? What if God doesn't exist? All those questions exacerbated by being at college where you're kind of alone and separate from the normal community. And I'm kind of existentially wired anyways, and just started wrestling with those questions. And my dad gave me the space when he responded, didn't put pressure on me, didn't put expectations, just was basically like, seek truth and we'll love you no matter what. And over time, there wasn't some big dramatic Paul-like experience. It was just a matter of reading and thinking and talking with people and going, okay, this this does make sense. And ultimately deciding I was going to go into Christian ministry years after that, I was going to plan on coaching and teaching for a while. So that's my quick journey. Feel free to ask any particular questions about it that may interest you, but hopefully that gets us gets us started. Can I, can I uh, try a follow-up or two? Of course. Okay. Um, so one of the things I've always wanted to ask you about your faith journey, in fact, I ask it uh, when I listen to you on other programs, I just ask my phone and it just sits there like <laughs> stupidly. And so <laughs> I'm going to try it again and maybe even get an answer. Technology is fantastic. Uh, <laughs> so um, I, I want to know more about your doubts uh, because I hear a lot of Christians talk about doubts. I'm a, I, I was a Christian who went through doubts, and I would say that the quality of doubt that I went through is maybe of a, maybe a different caliber than a lot of the doubts that I hear people talking about. Uh, there's so if if I can separate it out, there's the kind of doubt that uh, happens in Christianity that I think is just a matter of course uh, that you're you're kind of dealing with some cognitive dissonance. Well, Christianity for me is all all about dealing with cognitive dissonance. The Trinity is a is a cognitive dissonance that we can't really talk about reasonably, but you have to figure out a way to believe it. Or you know, God God tells Abraham to do something uh, awful, and and yet God tempts no one with evil. And so you you put those things together, and you kind of you know you live with that tension. And there are all kinds of th- things like that that are that are tensions that are just a part of Christianity. So that's one layer of doubt. And I, I think that every Christian goes through those types of things. And then there's the layer of doubts where you really sincerely uh, run up against the wall and you're thinking, ah, you know, I, th- the reason I thought that God exists, it turns out was a bad reason. And I don't actually know whether God exists, whether Jesus rose from the dead. Um, in these these more crucial issues, uh, so that's a, that's a different caliber of doubt. And then one other one other aspect of that, so you can deal with your doubts inside of the the confines of the church, where you're getting sermons and prayer every day, and you're singing the song, and you're getting the spiritual uh, reinforcement. And then there's the doubts where you do something about it, and maybe you step outside of that world, do a lot of opposition reading, maybe uh, do a, a time when you don't go to church uh, and pray. Um, so I guess I'm trying to figure out what level of doubt you had exactly and what things you actually doubted. Um, you know, what what was the main concern of your doubt? Yeah, that's a great question. I, you know, in my experience, I know there's some cognitive dissonance that Christians have. 
I don't think most really go through a sincere questioning period of like, do I really believe this or not? I mean, my three sisters are all smart and thoughtful. They never really went through that. Most of my friends, even from Christian, you know, Christian settings and others did not go through it to the level I think that I did. So I think you're right that there's some cognitive dissonance, but I think it's the exception of people who really pause and start reading and thinking about this and asking what if I'm wrong? Like, am I willing to give this up? At least that's my experience. I, I would say mine was a combination of both intellectual and emotional. It was the intellectual who that got my attention reading around. And in particular, to be specific to your question, I remember reading an article that talked about these dying and rising gods and that Jesus didn't even exist. It was the first time I had ever come across mythicism. I mean, it never crossed my mind that somebody thought Jesus didn't exist. Again, this is, you know, early to mid nineties and Osiris and Donyasis and all these different dying, rising gods. I was like, Oh my gosh, I kind of implicitly knew the resurrection was the heart of the Christian faith. And if somebody could disprove that it's done. And so that kind of threw me for a loop for a while. And I just, as much as I had heard apologize from my dad, that was not anything I had ever heard or thought about or experienced. And the emotional came with just going, oh my gosh, like, wow, if this isn't true, this isn't just a head game for me. This would cost me a lot with my family, with my friends, et cetera. Like, all I can tell you is I remember weighing that in my mind and feeling it, not just kind of this this head game that I was wrestling through. Mm-hmm. Now, as far as answering it, I guess two things. It was kind of at that point in my life where I'm like, okay, I guess I got to read, you know, things like the Book of Mormon, or I got to read Dan Barker had a book. Uh, it came out shortly after that, I believe, his first one. You know, after that, I'm like, I got to read his original book, something called like Losing Faith. Um. I read Bertrand Russell's book. So for me, it was never enough to just read one side and try to convince myself that I was right. That it, just it struck looks like me. we went through the same reading reading list. Did you read, he yeah. read that? Too? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I mean, you have to, right? I couldn't live with myself. It's just the way I'm wired. Now, outside of the church, I mean, I, my, my family's Christian. My dad actually, amazingly enough, gave me a ton of space. He didn't even press me on this at all, which surprises people. He's just like, son, I'm here. You want to talk about it? Great. But you got to figure some things out. Um, I didn't give up my Christian friends, but I wasn't regularly going to church. I was at a Christian school, so I'm clearly surrounded by Christian people. But all I can say is I went out of my way to say, I got to read these other thoughts. I got to have conversations with people who are different and figure out if this makes sense or not. I appreciate okay. uh, I appreciate you answering that, Dale. Yeah. Uh, so I, I think you sort of answered uh, question three there as well. So I, I'm actually going to follow up with question four and just sort of ask. So Sean, based on your experience and that sort of thing with with these doubts, and I, I think that's great. I, I went through a similar search myself and that sort of thing to wrestle with my own doubts. Uh, I think it took about eight years or so of, of study with people like Gary Habermas or wow. consulting, uh, yeah, uh, you know, consulting work of you guys and, and try my best uh, to look at both sides and come out to the truth. So what I wanted to ask you is, do you have any advice um, for for Christians who may be experiencing 
uh, doubts. Um, would that advice differ depending on the types of doubts that they're having? Um, and how would that contrast uh, with any advice you'd give to unbelievers who have doubts about Christianity? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question to compare Christians and non-Christians. Let me let me start with 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 Christians. I when I started going through doubts, I remember for a long time, even after I you know kind of solidified what I believed, having questions and kind of just being like, man, why do I question everything? Like, why do some people just simply believe and not be plagued by these questions? I mean, even I just naturally doubt things even today. And it dawned on me one day, I was like, you know what? If I wasn't a doubter, I wouldn't have spent, you know, three years writing a 300 plus page academic book, tracing down the fates of the apostles because I was bothered to know if this was even a good line of reasoning for the Christian faith. I wouldn't do what I do. And you guys wouldn't either if you weren't wired that way. So I guess that was just kind of giving myself some space, giving myself some grace, realizing I'm wired that way. And just being okay with it was really helpful uh, to me to a degree. The other thing I would say is I think our tendency is to assume that all doubt is intellectually based. And there is an intellectual component of it. But I don't know how many people sincerely and honestly aim to separate, like, how much of this is relational? How much of this is emotional? How much of this is moral? How much of this is my will and how much of this is really intellectual? Because it sounds a lot more sophisticated to say something intellectual about doubts than it does. I was wounded by somebody or there's hypocrites in the church. And so I would just encourage this would be Christians and non-Christians, like really talk through with somebody, try to figure out yourself, reflect upon it and get to the heart of where your doubts are. Because I've had so many conversations with people where they raise questions and they're pressing them. And through time, maybe it's because experience or my own journey, I'll just start probing and asking questions, trying to get to the heart of it. And by the end of the conversation, we're talking about something totally different than where they thought their doubts really were. So my encouragement to both Christians and non-Christians, if they have questions that they're doubting, is just to say, have you really taken the time to assess what the heart of these doubts are? Have you shared your story? Have you tried to really process and then once you know as best you can what the heart of those doubts are, then address it and deal with it. So to some of my, I guess, outside friends, one thing that I've found consistently is that in conversations, I'll almost always find just some some theology at the heart of it, bad theology. And I don't know each of your stories, so I'm not saying that all these are always true. But oftentimes I keep pressing and I, and and I'll ask them, like, you know, what keeps you from the faith? And when they tell me, I'm like, if I could answer this, would it would it really help? And then I keep pressing and you get to certain theological ideas. I'm like, man, I don't think Bible, the Bible teaches that. I don't believe that. Can I tell you what scripture actually teaches about Jesus? So for outsiders, I guess I would encourage them to separate their emotional from intellectual doubts and it just makes sure they really understand who Jesus is and what the gospel is. So at least they know what they're rejecting. In many cases, I find that people aren't rejecting what scripture actually teaches. So I guess that that's a few things that would, would come to my mind. Excellent. All right. So just before we move into the main topic, the, the historicity and the fates of the 12 apostles, 
Um, David, did you have any follow-up questions on that, or did you have a general overall question? I feel the, the spirit of my skeptical audience pushing me to ask one more follow-up question. Because okay. they will let me have it if I, if I don't ask the right questions. Um, I don't want them shouting at their phones and breaking them like I, like I did mine. Um, this is for you people. All right. But uh, so some of the, some of the, what you just said there at the end, I can relate to when you're saying, well, you want to make sure that they've got the right view of God or the right theology to, to doubt in the first place. But to a part of me, that sounds a bit condescending, it's especially to a lot of, uh, people who are non-Christians who were Christians before, uh, like myself. And, you know, not everyone was a, a, a Christian for, uh, you know, almost 40 years and a preacher for that. So th- that obviously doesn't apply to everyone. But a lot of people were Christians and have had their relationship with the church and with Christianity in, of their own. And it seem, seems a little bit condescending to come in after the fact and say, well, let me just examine your theology and make sure that you were the right kind of Christian or you had the right kinds of beliefs. Uh, I don't, I don't know how well that would come across. And, uh, another, another thing that I hear Christians say, uh, to we, uh, doubters, especially we Xers, uh, is that, well, you know, you must've had some kind of bad experience, uh, that made you want to rebel or, or something like that. And, that that also, uh, it all, it all just feels condescending, uh, as if to say, well, if you had only met me before, then then you wouldn't have had these doubts. Um, one last thing on the point of the bad experience comment, I would think that if if a person has had bad experiences such that they don't want to deal with the church anymore, that seems like a legitimate uh, reason to doubt the claim. Because the church is, in fact, the kingdom of God, uh, full of people with changed lives. And I know you've got people at various stages, but there should be enough people with changed lives who are washed uh, by the the blood and indwelled by the Spirit so that certain experiences shouldn't be common uh, in the church. And so it does seem to be a reasonable uh, position to take uh, if you have had certain bad experiences in the church to say, I don't want anything to do with that. So let me – I totally understand where you're coming from in the bad experience. Um, that's not a point that I'm I'm arguing or putting forward, so I'll let other people <laughs> respond to that one. I think you're right that that experience can be central for a lot of people and that the church can and needs to do a lot better. Um, I, I, I can't disagree with that. My only point is in many conversations that I've had, I'll just simply ask people, tell me what you believe. And I'll, I'll give you an example, a particular one. I had a conversation not long ago with a former Christian, and he said one of the issues was that, you know, God hates gays, and he's anti-gay and calls gays an abomination. And I just stopped. I'm like, wait a minute. Where does the Bible even say that? It doesn't. Now, Leviticus 18, it describes the behavior as an abomination, but that's very different. It describes a lot of behaviors as an abomination besides telling people they are an abomination. Now, obviously, we don't want to debate this particular issue. That's not my point. I just stopped. I'm like, where does the Bible actually teach this? Like if that's central in rejecting 
the faith uh, to you. I just want to know where scripture teaches this. And it doesn't. So it's that kind of conversation. And it's not meant to sound condescending. I kind of knew when you when the question was asked, what would be my advice for seekers outside that kind of anything that I said would be interpreted <laughs> that way since I'm not on the outside. So I'm not intending it to be that way. I kind of said it with some hesitancy, like, here we come. All, and I'm not saying that I've got all my theology in a row. I'm just saying that's one piece of advice that I would give is just make sure you go back to what Jesus taught. And you know what? I would say the same to a Muslim. Like, am I rejecting, because I don't believe in Islam, am I rejecting actually what Muhammad taught and the Quran teaches? I mean, that's only fair. I've got to go back and look at it and make sure I'm not reacting against some straw man of what the Quran teaches and sure. as best I can what it really actually says. But, but those people have been taught by their imams and or by their preachers. I, I was raised in the U.S. South, the Bible Belt. Yeah. Um, so I, I can tell you that people aren't following some straw man, at least from their perspective. They're following what uh, they have been taught and reinforced uh, through Sunday school, uh, through a lifetime of sermons, maybe through a couple of years of, of Bible college, uh, they have researched that, and they have been taught by you know those people set up as authorities to to teach and equip these things. And so, yes, you can come along and say, well, this thing that uh, you've been taught is wrong, but that's that's not as simple a message uh, as as it might seem for someone who has been raised to believe a certain way and has been raised to read the Bible a certain way, and then to say, well, you, you've just you just drew the bad straw. And you got all the wrong information. Here, let me give you this other piece of information. I, I would think that they would be hesitant to, to, to take to accept that. But look, I, I don't, I don't want to get stuck there. But I, um, these are these are some of the thoughts that I have when I hear when I kind of hear that argument uh, when you're. And I don't. By the way, I don't have a better answer for you of how to evangelize um, non Christians and especially Xers. Um, I, I don't want to evangelize them, so I guess I haven't thought about what, what would be best to do it. But I can, I can tell you, all of, the, all of the answers that I've heard from well-meaning people uh, do, do not come across sounding very good to exers like myself anyway. Fair enough. Um, okay, all right. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, unless Sean has something he wants to, to say, I, I think you've sort of covered that, that section. I, I think Sean's given some good advice. It, it's not, it doesn't have to be universal or this is the way it has to be or whatever. But, you know, obviously I have my own ideas about my real seeker criteria, as the audience will know. And um, <laughs> it, it's consistent. It, it applies to Christians as well. We, we don't have all the answers. Um, so we need to be open to, you know, am I, could I be wrong? If I'm not a hundred percent certain, it's possible I could be wrong in my conclusion. So, so yeah, I, I think these standards, um, and advice can be consistent for for both Christian and non-Christian there to to some extent. Um, so yeah, let, let's sort of transition into the historicity um, aspect, uh, the main topic of the debate. Um, and discussion. Sorry. Discussion. <laughs> I'm not getting uh, in a debate with Sean McDowell. I'm not, I'm not crazy. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. So um, one thing that just before we get into the, the question, before I ask question number five, um, David in, made an ad hoc, um, an insertion here. He, he wants to, right at the beginning, sort of ask a question about, let's pretend we grant everything about the historicity of the 12 apostles and the fates of the apostles. Um, what is the significance of your of this argument? What what do you think this this evidence or this argumentation can be used to prove? So I, I think this argument has been used very poorly. And part of my research was to try to push Christians back to be more careful. Because I think the argument has typically been all the apostles, except maybe John died as martyrs. Uh, they wouldn't lie. Therefore, it's true and Christianity comes along with that. Well, that's way too simplistic and overstated and doesn't follow from the evidence. Uh, we can, for the sake of discussion, concede that all 12 died as martyrs. I, personally, I see no reason to do that because I'm not going to advance that They all did. Mm -hmm. I don't think we can know that. I think anyone who says that they think we can know that is just reaching and not aware of the historical evidence or the lack of historical evidence for a good number of the apostles. All this argument is, is it's one piece of a larger resurrection argument where we're asking about the sincerity of the apostles and the reliability of their testimony. That's it. It doesn't disprove the hallucination account because if there were some kind of hallucinations, they believed that they saw Jesus and maybe would be willing to die for that belief. So it doesn't disprove uh, say the hallucination hypothesis or the bereavement accounts or some of these other common uh, naturalistic explanations that we we hear about. All it shows is that they're not liars and they sincerely believe that Jesus appeared to them after their death. That's it. It's only demonstrating the sincerity of their belief. It doesn't even fall that Christianity is true from this or that Jesus rose from the grave. And we don't even actually have to show that they all died as martyrs, which we can't show, by the way. It just shows that their willingness to suffer and face martyrdom, which I think we have good reason to believe, shows the depth of their sincerity, and they didn't invent the story. That's it. Perfect. Perfect. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, let, let's get into that then. So. Here's the, the first question. Before we even address uh, the issue of the fates of the apostles, um, would you be able to maybe lay out what, what are some of the positive reasons or evidence um, that historians can use to show that there was even a group of 12 apostles in the first place? Yeah, that's a great question. I think, and I know you guys are aware of this, that John Meyer, a historical Jesus researcher, has probably laid out, the I think, the best case for this. And what's interesting is he writes in his book on, you know, Jesus, he calls it a marginal Jew. He goes, we don't even need to spend much time on this because this topic isn't even really debated in academic circles. And I researched that to see if it was it was true. And I could hardly find any debate about the existence of the apostles. It doesn't mean it's not a good question. That's not my point. But there's I didn't even include it in my dissertation because there was just such little academic question about it, interestingly enough. Maybe that'll shift at some point. So the typical arguments that are given would be things like multiple attestation when you use some of the criteria for the historical Jesus. 
that you have references to the 12 in all four Gospels. And I know Matthew and Luke would probably be one source. You have a John. You have it in Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, where he refers to the 12. And there's not only an, a, a multiple attestation in the different sources, but also in the forms, the kinds. So like a letter and then a gospel, et cetera. Another argument that would be given would be embarrassment, uh, that Judas bears the tag of one of the 12. And, you know, for what cogent reason would the early church have gone out of its way to invent, you know, a troubling tradition as Jesus being betrayed by Judas? And Meyer argues, he says, you know, we also, if you get Judas, who's a part of the 12, you kind of get the 12 along with this. That would be one of Meyer's arguments. I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, I guess the third would be just kind of the general flow of the argument. If the, if the 12 were invented by the early church, you might expect to see filled with stories of their lives after the time of Jesus, which we don't have as much as you and I might like in the question that we're asking on you know, the, the, the show today. If it was invented, you might expect more of that, but some of them just completely drop off. And the last one, Richard Bauckham has done a really interesting study in his book, uh, Jesus, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, where he looks at the names of the 12, kind of an onomastic study, looking at their presence within the gospel tradition and the names that appear outside of the gospel. And there's pretty remarkable continuity between, say, the number of times Peter and Thomas and Philip shows up and their role in the gospels with what we know about the presence of those names shortly before and shortly after. So likely wasn't a tradition invented in a distant land or a long time later, or they couldn't have mashed up the names so carefully. Those are some of the basic arguments that would be given for the existence of, of at least the 12. So let me, let me uh, try some follow-up with that. So the, the last argument, I've heard you make that uh, before the Richard uh, Bauckham research there. I, I don't I don't find that convincing because I mean I'm, so I'm a writer uh, by trade and if I'm writing a story let's say a fiction story by the way I'm a nonfiction writer I'm a lousy fiction writer every writer tries to write fiction <laughs> just <laughs> we just don't talk about it because we're bad at it so at any rate um, my efforts with fiction have taught me. Uh, Things like if I want to make my character, if I'm doing historical fiction, I might do a little bit of research on names for that place and time so that they do match um, with uh, the cultural expectation of what you would find in that time, especially if I want it to you know, have an air of authenticity uh, to it, even though I'm writing fiction. So that's, that doesn't seem that hard to do. If you were if you were making up names for the twelve, uh, so I don't I don't find that particular argument convincing. I would say of the uh, of some of the other arguments that you've made, though, um, I I think one of the problems with the twelve, maybe the biggest problem for me, is that the number seems to be more important than the people. It's a very auspicious number, uh, and I should say a very suspicious number. <laughs> um, and it's more important that it be the 12 than the people. I remember there's one little um, uh, kerfuffle with the number. I want to say that Paul uh, uses uh, the number uh, in, a, in a way that is a little bit strange in one occasion uh, that doesn't 
take into the account of Judas. I can't exactly remember that. But um, in, in their lists of the 12, and the lists seem to be a little bit different, uh, which, is, which is strange without any explanation there. And as far as the stories of the 12, we don't actually have stories of the 12. And so I know that you mentioned this as kind of a, a strength. Well, therefore, it's true and not fake. But it seems to me that there were only a few stories of people worth telling. And once again, it wasn't the people that was important in this inner circle. It was just the maintaining of this idea of the number. It's a little bit like saying that David was the seventh brother. And yet we have other places that talk about David's brother where he may have been the eighth. And there may have even been nine brothers. But seven was really important. So... Um, can you, can you maybe speak to some of that? Um, because the way that the way the Bible talks about the 12, it really seems like the number is the important thing rather than the people. Yeah. First off, thanks for doing your homework and asking good questions. I honestly appreciate it. This is how the dialogue advances. So let me see if I can make a few responses that may be helpful. You're right in doing say a fictional story, one would go back and check names uh, to make sure it has kind of the ring of authenticity. One pushback I would give is the precision that's involved in this that Bauckham studies would require a ton and ton of research, which I'm not sure would have been as easily done back then, especially by the kinds of writers that we have, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, that could be done by you or me today writing a fiction book. They don't have the internet. They don't have access to the same kind of libraries. The limitations that they would have, I think on the flip side, gives the precision and the numbers that Bauckham walks through a little bit more force than us being able to just go do research of what names were popular a generation ago um, with the resources that are at our fingertips. Um, but fair, fair challenge. Uh, a couple things. When we look at you mentioned there's different lists, and you're right. When you look at say, you know, Matthew 10, Mark 3, Luke 6, there's a little different list. Sometimes in the order, although Peter's always first, you have Judas described a little bit differently. And I don't mean Judas the one who betrayed, but Judas uh Thaddeus or son of uh Alpheus. They're described a little bit differently. I actually think this shows that these are probably independent testimony rather than copying from each other. So I actually think the small differences in the lists tell us that they're not just photocopying and borrowing each other's material, but there's some independent testimony that's going on, which gives credibility to the multiple attestation point that I was making earlier. Uh, as far as the 12, you're right. Sometimes the number the 12 is used when um, say Judas is absent. So it's like, wait a minute, it's 12, but there's only 11 who are there. That's right, because the name, the 12, isn't referring just to the number, it refers to the group. And you see this, for example, the, I live in Southern California, and used to be the, the Division One basketball group was called the Pac-10. Mm-hmm. But they had 11 and then eventually 12 people in the, in the division, in the conference, and they still called it the Pac-10 because that was a name that referred to it. And then, of course, they updated it to the Pac-12. So, yes, the numbers differ. But I think that's because it refers to the group, not so much the individuals, which brings me to the last point you made, which is really interesting. And you're right. I actually think it's less about the individuals that make up the group 
as opposed to being the group itself. And one of the things that's going on, like if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's clearly showing the different authority that Jesus has. He has authority over the Sabbath. He has authority to forgive sins. But when he initiates the 12, it's Mark's way of saying he has this divine authority because in the Old Testament, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. God is taking this as a reference and reworking it, so to speak. And Jesus is the one who has the authority to do this. He has divine authority. So it's not actually, and it never was at the beginning, so important that we understand exactly who these 12 were, what they do, where they go. I mean, partly in this research, I'm looking going, why don't they tell us more about Matthias? All we have is him in Acts, you know, filling the spot from Judas. Why don't they tell us more about Matthew? Why don't they tell us more about Bartholomew, et cetera? And, and for all we know, they, they had swapped people out several times before then. So maybe that explains the differences in the lists. That That's actually possible. I think you're right about that. Meyer goes into that. He says it could be that somebody died and somebody else stepped in. We also have the possibility that people had multiple names back then, sometimes two or three names, and be, would be referred to differently. So you're, you, I think you and I agree that we would like more information on some of these apostles. Like, who is this, you know, Judas, son of Alphaeus? Where did he go? How did he die? Why aren't we given more information? And I think the answer is that the, the 12, like you said, served a different function within the church. And they were asking different questions than we're asking specifically on the show. And that's why you actually look, last point I'll make, the beginning of Acts, when Judas is gone, it's really important to fill up that 12 role initially for the church. They add Matthias. But when you have the death of James, the son of Zebedee in Acts 12, there's no efforts to refill the 12 anymore. It had performed its function at the beginning of the church and then now was over. Awesome. Yeah, I think I think. Yeah, I just wanted to say also, I think this is a great converse, uh, conversation. I'm, I'm grateful that David's done research so we can have this great dialogue. I think people are definitely going to benefit from this. Um, yeah, I guess just sort of following up then, I'm on question number question number six. It is um, five five B. <laughs> five oh, oh, five B. Okay. Oh, that's right. Sorry, David has another follow up. So sorry. Well, sorry. You can ask it if you want to. I'll I'll ask it. Uh, but my fear is that I will be uh, pasted as the Ken Humphreys uh, stand in <laughs> when I ask five B. But it. So I just want to get it out of the way. Because, again, I know it's one of those questions that I would have if I was listening to this, and I know that uh, the audience on both sides would have. Before we go further, can you tell us about your sources uh, for the information that you have, not just with you know, the the authenticity of the 12, but all, all of the stuff that you're going into from here? I know that as a skeptic, I have a particular view about the Bible and you know how I how I think some of its sources are in Acts and Luke and so forth, and whether I think that's good history or not. And, um, you know, when all of the sources are kind of based on religious sources, it's, uh, even looking at it from a historical point of view, there's part of me that still says, okay, but is there anything else, is there anything secular um, from... Uh, beyond that. And I, and I, and I know the answer to this, so I don't, I don't want to push it too hard, but I, I just want to say, I'm, I'm a little concerned that all of the sources for what we know about the apostles seem to be very close, uh, uh, 
interested, not disinterested uh, religious sources who had a, a reason to want to believe um, what they ended up writing. So we have to look at these sources as we would any source. Yes, they had a reason they wanted to write. So did Jewish writers like Josephus. So did Roman writers like Tacitus. Everybody has a reason and a bias. You have a reason for doing the show. I have a reason for doing the show. The question is, do we give good reasons? Do we care about truth? And when it comes to ancient sources, there's two ways we could look at this. One would be to say, all right, let's look at the reliability for the Gospels as ancient documents compared to any other ancient document. And you know how these discussions can go. That's one way to look at it. And obviously you and I are probably going to differ on how strong we think that is. Mm -hmm. The other way is just to say, okay, we don't even have to assume that these are reliable documents as a whole. Let's use the criteria that historical Jesus scholars have come up with. And a lot of these, I mean, for the Jesus seminar, are naturalists, admittedly. So these aren't just conservative scholars coming up with criteria to support what they want to support. And so you look at things like multiple attestation, you look at embarrassment, you look at discontinuity, you know, et cetera, and say, what are the sayings and events of Jesus that we can take individually and have good reason to believe are actually historical and true? And I think when we approach it that way and we look at the apostles, I mean, there are so many references to them. They are early, historically speaking. There's embarrassment. There's discontinuity, et cetera. There, there is a reason why the vast majority of, of scholars that I've been able to find from the left and to the right have very little question about at least the existence of the 12. In fact, one of Habermas's sources is not only that the disciples exist, but they believe that they had experiences of the risen Jesus, almost unanimously accepted, and that's by breaking down the sources in the way that we do. So you don't have secular sources until later on, although Josephus helps a little bit when it comes to James. Uh, He doesn't tell us a lot about it because, broadly speaking, the church wasn't on the focus of what Josephus was even discussing. So we have to work with what we have, and I think if we approach it and look at it simply through a standard historical lens, I think we have good reason to believe there was a group called the Twelve and that Jesus commissioned them. Okay. Um, uh, on the Josephus-James part, I think I would just say, yeah, jo- Josephus did mention uh, James. He doesn't mention James as an apostle, and certainly not one of the Twelve. In That's fact, true. He, he wouldn't have been one of the Twelve. And so that mention doesn't really help um, as far as a extra biblical source. It only helps if we're talking about the way you frame this is the apostles and the other two. But I think if you work in reverse back to James role in the early church and acts and his relationship with them, it helps indirectly, but not directly in the way you're pointing out. That's totally fair. Okay. Dale. Um, okay. Yeah. So I, I think we kind of touched upon this, um, but there was one aspect uh, going back to the Jesus, the historicity of the group of the twelve. Um, some some skeptics have questioned. Okay, I can grant that the twelve as a group was historical based on the evidence, but they might just question. But when did that group form? Was it after post resurrection in the early church, um, or can we actually trace this back to the ministry of Jesus? 
Um, and just for, for listeners, uh, Sean's mentioned The Circle of the Twelve by John Meyer. Uh, I'm going to include uh, a link in the sources, an attachment for people to check out. Um, but yeah, just, just right now, sort of quickly, um, Sean, do, do you know, is, is there evidence that can actually link the group of the Twelve being formed to Jesus specifically uh, during his ministry as opposed to at a later point or something? Yeah, so of course, the answer to this question is going to rest upon how we assess the sources. So if you look, Mark 3, Luke 6, Matthew 10, we consistently have Jesus calling the disciples and establishing this group. And that's, it's hinted at in John, although it's not referred to as the 12, you still have him calling and commissioning some of his disciples that matches up with a gospel tradition. So how we answer whether he commissions them or not depends upon how we assess uh, these kinds of sources. There is one argument that I hinted at earlier but didn't really go into detail that that Meyer gives. And I'm not sure if it's in that article or not. I'm referring to volume three of A Marginal Jew. So it may be in the article you're referring to. If not, people can go read it there. But he points something out. The original, you know, the Greek term for disciples appears in all four of the Gospels and Acts. But it's absent in the rest of the New Testament. So, for example, it's in Matthew like 72 times, Luke 37, Mark 46, John 78 times. But it's virtually absent in Paul and in the other New Testament writings and other early church writings, including some Jewish writers such as Josephus and Philo. Now, if you think about that, it's not in the writings around the time of New Testament. It didn't exist in the writings before and shortly after. So it's not an anachronistic retrojection of the early church back into Jesus' ministry, nor was it borrowed from an existing document or source the way it was done beforehand. So what's meant by discontinuity, let me take a step back, is historical Jesus scholars will look at statements like, say, the Son of Man that Jesus used more often than any other designation to refer to himself. Barely existed before the time of Jesus, barely afterwards. So it wasn't borrowed from earlier or retrojected back from after, seems to go to the historical Jesus himself. And that's the same with the group of the disciples. It doesn't show up afterwards or in other writings, barely, even though the concept does, the same word doesn't. And it didn't exist in the same way before. So the argument would be that it goes back to the historical Jesus. So, uh, first of all, anachronistic retrojection is the name of my new indie rock band. Um, so, uh, thanks for that. Uh, um, the 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 disciples. Uh, it does get a little bit of uh, a little bit confusing in the Gospels because sometimes you're you're talking about looking at what you think is the twelve, and then maybe it's the seventy or the seventy-two, uh, or maybe you're looking at a hundred and twenty. Um, there there are different kind of numberings for a group called the disciples, uh, and so in each of those numbers, I would argue have a special significance. And so whereas the twelve may have had the greatest significance, it wasn't the only number grouping uh, of, of disciples that were used, and yet we never talk about what happened to the 120 or the, or the 72, or, you know, we never, we never talk about them. In fact, the, the 12, they don't, they don't all get speaking roles. 
it, it, so it, it, it does seem very strange if we're talking about people and not just significant numbers. But uh, at, at any rate, you, you have responded to that before. I don't mean to keep bringing it up, but it's, um, it's kind of top of mind to me how, how the, the New Testament, in particular the Gospels, uses the word disciples in the particular number groups that it uses. Well, if I could say really fast, you're right. I mean, there's the 120, there's the 72, and there's also apostles who weren't part of the 12, and there's disciples who were not a part of the 12. So even the way Luke and Paul use the term gets a little bit confusing. This is where my task was hard when you look at the early church. They'd use the term apostle, but they weren't referring to the 12. So this is just one thing that makes our task difficult. Now, I focused on the 12 and Paul and Peter because they were the closest to Jesus. They traveled with him. They ministered with him. He distinctly, I would argue, commissioned this group and told them to go out and make disciples. So we also have more information about them than we do like the 120. So it's more out of their testimony, I think, being more significant if we can establish it, having more information about them, although not as much as we want to. But if we had the information, it'd be fascinating to know what happened to the rest of them. Okay. Um, is this one me, Dale, or is this you? Yeah, so I, I think we're going to tr- sort of transition specifically into the the martyrdoms. And this was a question that you you specifically came up with. So, yeah, this is number seven. Okay. Uh, you, yeah. yeah. Okay, so I was, I was just trying to figure out how to word this without going over uh, ground that we've already covered. Um, martyrd- martyrdom is a big deal uh, to Christians. And I, uh, let me just say, I think that uh, Christians sometimes have uh, a martyrdom complex. The most comfortable Christians in the world are uh, U.S. Christians. Uh, and they all, they, they, the more conservative they are, the, the more of a martyr complex they seem to have. And I would, I would argue that um, this has probably been going on from the early days. Jesus' message um, had, a, had a strong martyrdom, martyrdom bent to it. Um, I interviewed someone uh, not all that long ago who uh, said on air, uh, this was uh, Natalie Collins, that she, you know, she had hoped to die as a martyr. Um, it, there seems to be a little bit of a, of an, uh, <laughs> what I might call an unhealthy, uh, fixation with martyrdom, but at any rate, the, part of the argument for Christians, and I know that you reject is that all 12 of them clearly died as, uh, martyrs. Uh, we, we know that that didn't happen because John didn't die quote unquote as a martyr. I'm curious, which, which ones do you think we have good evidence let, let's say 75% or above, that you can say these apostles died as martyrs? Yeah, that's a great question. I think of the 12, we have two that we have, I'll just say, strong historical uh, probability they died as martyrs, Peter and James, the son of Zebedee. If we add James, the brother of Jesus, and Paul, I think those two are also strong. And then I think a case that you could say is at least more plausible than not. So minimally probable. And I hold this with just it's just loosely you can make a case for Andrew and Thomas because you're moving into the late second, early third century. So if we take the 14, I think there's four we're on solid ground. I think two are at least arguably more plausible than not. 
And could before uh, Dale takes over for the audience, could you define uh, what you mean by martyr? I've I've heard you talk about this, and it's it's fascinating the breadth of meaning that that people can mm-hmm. pour into the word. Yeah, there was there's an entire literature on this, and I had to define it early on. And essentially, it's it, it's being willing to die and losing one's life in a fashion that is tied to your beliefs. So that's probably a more broad interpretation of it, but it gets sticky because what if somebody, you know, is beaten up for their beliefs and they die six months later or two years later from wounds? Do they count as a martyr? What if they get really close to death but eke it out and survive? Do they count as a martyr? You know, and also there's the question of how do we know somebody was died and suffered or killed for their beliefs? So this gets a little bit sticky, but I would say their lives are taken from them. They willingly lay it down, and it's tied to a belief that they're proclaiming and at least holding. Broadly speaking, that's the reference to martyrdom. Okay, Dale. Um, yeah, so um, perfect. Just sort of following up then uh, um, on David's question, you, you gave us sort of your list as to who you think there, there's something to see here from a strictly historical perspective. Um, would you mind just sort of laying out in a in a quick summary format well, what what is the what are the historical evidences or reasons that make it more probable than not that these apostles probably died as martyrs or were willing to to die for their faith and that sort of thing? And in particular, maybe sort of in addition to focusing on Peter and Paul, um, you know, highlight also Andrew and Thomas. Like, what what are the interesting uh, considerations there? Sure. So I'll I'll, I'll be quick. Peter is referenced more than any other apostle in the gospel accounts. And I think we have the best case for Peter dying as a martyr. We have two first century references. One is from John 21, 18 and 19. And even Bart Ehrman says it's clear Peter's being told he will be executed and that this will be the death of a martyr. I find that interesting. You have 1 Clement uh, 1, 5 through, I'm sorry, 1 Clement chapter 5, uh, the first four verses where this is written from Rome, interestingly enough, and this is probably written in the 90s. Again, the context makes it reveal that I think both Peter and Paul, Peter and Paul would die as martyrs, and uh, Ehrman agrees with that. Now, you look at the rest of Peter, you have, you have Ignatius, you have the Apocalypse of Peter, the Ascension of Isaiah. There's basically 10 sources from the end of the first through the second century that unanimously and consistently and early would say that Peter died as a martyr. Now with Paul, you have one passage, 1 Clement 5, 5 through 7, right after the passage from relating to Peter that describes him suffering greatly for his faith and then ultimately dying as a martyr, even though that word is not used. You have the passage in 2 Timothy, which I believe Paul wrote, but critics would say, oh, it's not Pauline, he didn't write it where he describes you know, his life being poured out in front of him. So either he's totally aware that his life is coming to an end and being taken away from him, or if he didn't write it, whichever community wrote it, felt the need to put that onto his lips because the martyrdom tradition was so strong. Nevertheless, you get into the second century, you have people like Ignatius, Polycarp, uh, Irenaeus, Tertullian towards the end of the second century, early, consistent, unanimously agree, that Paul dies as a martyr. James, the son of Zebedee, is a little bit differently because his death is explicitly described in Acts 12, 1 and 2, 
which of course the reliability of that account is going to depend upon the reliability of the book of Acts. But I think Craig Keener's right in his commentary when he said it just reads like an execution account of the time. We're not given any flowery details. There's no legendary detail until later accounts come in. And then after that in Acts, the unanimous church history tradition, every single one I could find um, is built upon that tradition. And then James, the brother of Jesus, we actually have his death being described in some detail in Josephus, probably 93, 94, in a passage that is not as debated as the Testimonium Flavianum. As far as I could tell, it's it's largely undisputed. And then you have into the second century, people like Hegesippus as recorded in Eusebius, Clement of Alexandria, first apocalypse of James. What's interesting about James is you have Gnostic sources, you have a Jewish source and Christian sources within the first 200 years pointing towards uh, his death and I would argue his martyrdom. Now, when you get to Thomas and Andrew, any honest person has to admit that the evidence is later. So the first shows up in what's called the Acts of Thomas, probably around AD 200. Now, there's some independent like archaeological finds that show that this document was not entirely fictional, but there's some historical figures. And of course, that would bring us back to your question, David, was that just added in or is that because there's legitimacy to the story itself? But then the the St. Thomas Christians, this group that lives today in India, has this oral tradition that largely lines up with uh, what we find in the Acts of Thomas, largely speaking. So the question is, are these two independent testimonies to Thomas? If so, we have good reason to believe he dies a martyr. If not, it doesn't mean he didn't, but it definitely would weaken the case. My concern concern there, just a real quick cut in with the Acts of Thomas, would be that no Christian would use the Acts of Thomas as an authoritative source on anything. It seems maybe a little ad hoc to then use it as a source for the uh, martyrdom of Thomas. Because I've, I've read the Acts of Thomas, such as it is, and it's not, I mean, I understand why churches don't, do readings from the Acts of Thomas, or why preachers don't allude to the Acts of Thomas. Well, the the task of a historian is different than the task of a preacher. So, of course, no preacher is going to use this. Now, actually, which preachers would to show what a lot of Christians believed around the second century and how some of these stories flower up? I think there could be some value for preachers to talk about it. But nevertheless, you have this first wave of these Acts of Paul Peter, John, and Thomas. And they're basically the the middle of the first century to the end of the second century. And there's no doubt that there's flowery, legendary material added in, which you obviously picked up on if you read it. But the question is, is it built upon a known historical core? And when we look at some of these, we do find that they add this legendary material but it's based upon like a skeleton of known established historical tradition. Now in Peter, that's easier to establish because we have a number of independent writings saying, oh, okay, he did arguably go to Rome. He did die as a martyr. So maybe the Acts of Peter has him upside down, adding some legendary material, but it still does have him dying as a martyr and it matches up in the broad story. So when it gets to Thomas, we have less independent testimony from it but it doesn't mean it's entirely fiction and made up. That's kind of where the heart of the debate and discussion is when it comes to Thomas. 
Perfect. And just before I turn it over to David, uh, do, do you mind just finishing off question eight? You're about to. And what's the case for Andrew as well? Oh, I here. don't. So Andrew, at best, you have the Acts of Andrew, which is the middle of the second century. And then you have another document that describes um, kind of Hippolytus is on the 12 in the third century, him dying on a tree, which matches up with the Acts of Andrew, him dying, being crucified. Now, look, I'm not going to die, metaphor, pun intended, on the case for Andrew, but I at least think any honest historian has to look at it and go, okay, do we have two independent traditions? Was this entirely made up? Is there something to it, historically speaking? And quite remarkably, there's a lot of historical events that people accept that are on evidence much less than what I've cited for, say, Thomas and Andrew. So, again, it is weaker, and I don't build my case on that, but I think sometimes it's been too quickly accepted, and I think sometimes it's been too quickly dismissed as well. Sure. So um, uh, independent attestation, that's that's another place where you know we lose a lot of time, and I don't plan to do that but I mean when you're when you're talking about something like a, a book like the Acts of Thomas or something like that uh, and then maybe you find in history someone uh, saying well you know this person died on a tree either they could have gotten it from the Acts of Thomas or the Acts of Thomas could have been embellished because someone uh, else thought it and said it that doesn't that doesn't actually prove independent attestation uh, so I would I would push back on that a little bit. I I don't know that we can say that those are independent attestations. Those, those could just be echoes of one attestation. So, so the Acts of Andrew, the way it's described in all the details are totally different from the way that it's described by Hippolytus. There's no indication of borrowing between the two. Now, does that prove they didn't know? But we just have to look at the sources we have and ask, okay, how far can we trace these sources back? Where can we trace these sources back from? And is there kind of the indication that they borrowed from each other in any way? And at least in these two sources of Andrew, again, it doesn't even mean it's true. They both could have independently made it up, but there's no indication looking at the two sources that there's a borrowing from one to the other. So at least their independent claims doesn't mean it's true, but that's just one thing historians would look at and go, okay, do we have two legitimate separate testimonies here that agree on the broad? Okay, maybe there's something to this. So it, this is about martyrdom. Um, a, a little bit of, of that definitional thing. Uh, Martin Luther King um, was a Christian, no doubt about it. Martin Luther King was moved by his Christianity to uh, – to work as he did in civil rights. I, I wouldn't question that either. But I would question whether he died a martyr. You might say he died a martyr of civil rights, but not necessarily of Christendom. And if I can throw one other example in there real quick, I know a preacher uh, personally uh, who died in the pulpit. Uh, he was shot wow. by someone. Um, and, you know, a great preacher quite renowned. Um, he did not die a martyr. Uh, he died because <laughs> he had slept with this guy's wife and this guy was mad. He came in with a gun and shot him. Um, but I mean, the narrative might be that, you know, as a Christian, he died uh, preaching the gospel. He died a martyr. My, my point is we, there's so little that we know about these, these people 
they're very one-dimensional characters. We only know them as Christians and nothing more. But they also might have been jerks. They they also might have been political dissonance. Uh, they you know there are any number of reasons why they could have died, been been singled out to die, whereas other Christians uh, lived in peace in the empire. And so I guess it's one final push to say, do we really know enough to say they died for the cause of Christ or or could they have died for other less dramatic reasons? So here's what I think we know. I I think we know, and again, we could dispute all this. You and I would probably differ. We know from the earliest accounts that belief in the resurrection was at the heart of what it meant to be a Christian. From 1 Corinthians 15 creeds, through all the Gospels, writings of Paul, there is no Christianity without belief in the resurrection from the earliest moments into the second century. We know the apostles believed that they had seen the risen Jesus. They believed that they had seen Jesus and they were willing to suffer and die for this. Now, when you look at the beginning of Acts, they go out and they publicly start proclaiming a risen Jesus. They're threatened. They're beaten. They're thrown in prison. We see the death of Stephen, not one of the 12. We see the death of James, the son of Zebedee. They're publicly proclaiming a crucified Messiah who is an enemy of the state of Rome, that he is God and Caesar is not. So they are willingly putting themselves in harm's way. In Acts 4 and 5, Peter and the apostles clearly say, we can't stop speaking that we've seen the risen Jesus. We don't fear men, we fear God. So all the things you're saying are possible. I mean, that's possible, but we do know, again, if we trust these early sources and we'd have to have that conversation, they believe they saw the risen Jesus, willingly put themselves in harm's way for that message, suffer for that message, Some of them die for that message, and we have no evidence that any of them recanted. Now, I realize that's an argument from silence, but two things I would throw out there is, number one, is there's debates in the early church about what happens to to people who kind of give up their faith at the moment of being, like, tortured. Can they be back in the fold? There was incentives for early Christians, if there was even a story about one of the apostles potentially recanting, What about Matthias? What about Judas, et cetera? And I mean Judas, son of Alphaeus. Second, critics who show up in the second, third century, if there were any stories of one of the apostles bailing on their faith and not dying as a martyr, they would also have incentive to use or arguably even fabricate a story of this kind. And yet it doesn't exist. So it's true we can't prove that they didn't, that they were, you know, not willing to recant, so to speak. But this is kind of a silence, I would say, that has some teeth. So I'm going to have to leave it there and let you guys wrap up. I apologize. So I know you would have some more questions and pushback, David. No, no, no. Full, wanna... Warm handshake. This has been a this has been a real delight, Sean. And uh, we appreciate you well, coming on you. and uh, answering some of our questions. This is this is you know we do have a Christian audience too, and uh, they have uh, they're offering loud cheers uh, for you right now. And uh, <laughs> you know, so quite frankly, uh, I, I appreciate it. and I hope we get a chance to. Um, to talk again. Sounds good. I apologize. I have to run so quickly. Thanks for doing your homework, for asking good questions, and uh, making an enjoyable interview. So best to both you guys. Thank right, you so much, Sean. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. And uh, as we have 
lost our special guest, I suppose we will skedaddle too. I just want to uh, say thank you again to Sean. We will post uh, links uh, in the show notes. Uh, thanks to Dale for uh, help making uh, this happen. And um, we have a special guest that will be next week-ish sometime. I don't know when it will air, but uh, this weekend we will be interviewing David Smalling. <laughs> we'll, I know the audience knows him. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, and uh, coming up, coming up soon after that, shall we tell him? Shall we tell him who's coming up after David Smalling? Should we? Uh, yeah, yeah, it's close enough, I think. Mark, March 2nd, the one that... Sure, go ahead. Drew Sokol. All right. Woohoo. Welcome so, to the show. Uh, guys. Yeah, so stay stay tuned uh, for the following weeks. It's, uh, it's just getting good. And uh, so we'll talk to you next time. All right. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>